Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're going to be exploring our fourth in the series of celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, but more importantly talking about DJs and some elements we haven't covered prior, and we're calling this episode Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I'm Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Welcome back, everybody, to the Music History Project, part four of our four-part series on the 50th anniversary of hip-hop with our very special guest, Kendrick Dial. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. It is wonderful to spend some time with you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Touche. So today we're going to do kind of a hodgepodge of uh, topics just because there's so many elements of, of uh, hip-hop, particularly as we focus on the DJs. So today I thought we'd get right into it with DJ Qbert. DJ Qbert is really well known for his amazing techniques. Uh, this guy has come up with all kinds of different styles of scratching and segueing, and he's got a name for everything. I can't keep up with him. I think he had an article that said uh, 100 scratches, and now I think it's over 1,000. So this guy's crazy, crazy good. And to battle, especially in the early days when battling meant you lost your gear if you lost, uh, you have to be damn good. And so, can we say that on this program? Okay, sorry. Well, let's get into what are your thoughts about the battling aspect? It's funny because when you talk about battling, a lot of times we don't think about it in that context. We a lot of times think about b boy and b girling, and or or maybe even uh, nowadays MCing, mm. kind of going back and forth. So to to hear that that nuanced piece of like you know DJ is going back and forth, right? And you know possibility of losing your gear you know number one it ups the ante in terms of like really making sure you come correct uh and whatnot but i think that's just uh such a a, a wonderful expression of like the the dieheartedness if you will of like how much these djs gave to their craft to develop how they showed up so that's, i think it's pretty amazing all right i agree that's awesome let's get into our first segment dj Qbert. The biggest contribution, I guess, to let people know that, um, you know, that everybody is a superhero. You know, everybody has a God-given gift to make the world a better place. And I like to, to let people know that, you know, that they can, they can do what they love to do and make people happy with it. And that's, that makes them happy, too, when you make other people happy. I invented a lot of scratches, but I don't like to say that because God invents everything. So I don't like to be like, yeah, I did this, I did that, you know, so I, all right. What scratches did God inspire you to produce? Crab, laser, phaser, um, uh, what do you call it, the, the hydroplane, um, this thing, I don't even have a name for it. I think I call it a squid or, or it's called a pusit, because pusit is, uh, in Filipino means uh, squid, so it's like a squid scratch. And if you go this way, it's the opposite. Uh, what else is there? Um, stuff that you rub your fingernail on the side of the record. I think it's called a nail file. Um, what else? Um, all kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know, a lot of different combinations. Then I like to, we, we want to give them names and stuff, but really if you break it down, they're just actually like, oh, it's a chirp combined into a prism, into a one-click flare. Oh, prism, there goes one. Um, uh, mirrored, mirrored hologram. Things like that. There's a lot. There's too many. I got a whole book where somebody wants to make a book out of something. I got a DVD. Go get it. Scratchlopedia. 100, 100 secret scratches. But now it's like a thousand because it's like we just it just keeps evolving, as in every type of art. Fellow artists. Oh man, I have to give the shout to my my crew, Invisible Scratch Pickles. Shout to Eminem. He gave us a shout on this last record. Did you hear it? He said Invisible Scratch Pickles. Something, something, whatever. But yeah, what's up? Um, Mixmaster Mike, Shortcut, D-Styles, Yoga Frog, um, DJ Apollo, A-Track. We're doing actually a, a big Invisible Scratch Pickles reunion in uh, Moscow. And I know you're with the DMC, but it's, I think it's for the Red Bull thing. So, 
those guys. Cookies, I just did some with him and Dan the Automator. Yeah. Oh, Fly God. If you heard all the new Griselda um, hip hop stuff, all the new Griselda um, music that's come out right now with uh, Conway and, and uh, West Side Gun, I just did some cuts for them. And, and that stuff still, that's like some, some real hip hop that I really love. Mugs, DJ Mugs coming out with um, Mayhem Loren. It's good stuff. Um, I roll like my manager, um, Kendo the DJ and the Fresh Crew. Sometimes they roll with me and they kind of like play beats in the background. Like today we we made a whole set of all real deep digging type stuff. Like every every time we do a performance at the Nam, it's gonna be different. Like the first show we did at the Relu booth, it was um, where I was doing like scratch notation. I had a little board and I was writing stuff down. And at the Serato booth, I did a, a kind of like a, a a rap mix with all hip hop, like I was talking about with the Griselda stuff, all that kind of weird stuff. Um, and then today we did a, a, a digging set where all the the breaks were just like hard to find stuff where people are gonna be like, what's that? What was that? What's that? They'll take picture of the screen. What's that? You know, so those guys help a lot. How do you find your sounds that you want to scratch on? Well, every anything that sounds dope or cuts through the noise, I'll, I'll use. You know, a lot of words, a lot of acapellas. Um, a lot of MCs, especially African Americans, of course, because they have that really dope voice, you know, or anyone sounds similar to that. They got a real dope voice that it cuts through, and you can, you know, use it with scratching. Usually, but it's anything that sounds sounds like slices right through the music, like a chicken, rooster. The chicken don't make noise; it's not it's a rooster, right? Or does a chicken make a noise? Anyway, I'm going a whole tangent with that. Animal noises, dog barks, those cut through the music. You know, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing, the turntable. You can turn any weird sound into an, a musical instrument. I love scratching drums, too. Highest level of scratching is, is drumming because they're so like close to each other. That's dope shit. What's your definition of turntablism? Turntablism definition would be uh, taking the sound, any sound, and turning it into a musical instrument, you know. It's, it's the beauty of it, because there's an infinity of sounds, so there's so much things that we haven't even touched yet. And I guess the definition is, um, ah, it's hard, it's, it's a miracle. Like, God bless us with a turntable that wasn't supposed to be a musical instrument, and it's like, wow, you can do all this stuff with it. It's, it's, um, it's very mysterious and very, like, um, you know, it's not supposed to be what it is supposed to be, but it's dope. It's kind of like... Um, it is supposed to be like that too. It was like almost as if it was planted there. Like, let's see if they'll figure this out. Check this out. Let's give Earth a turntable. See what happens. And then, you know, your boy Grammar's a theater figured it out. Like, oh damn. So this was Qbert talking about battling. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you have a story about Grand Wizard Theater. I hear. I do indeed. Well, Kendrick was saying earlier. You know the. The battling of DJs is a very interesting concept. And if you think about the early days, I'm talking about in the Bronx in Harlem uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a serious thing. You know, you, it wasn't just getting together in the park. It was showing your stuff and coming up with new ideas. And as uh, DJ Jazzy Joyce said, bringing your swag, you know, making it a performance that people want to come to. And, um, but the element that you could actually lose your gear if you lost was, it's got to be frightening because a lot of these guys in the early days made their own stuff from mom and grandma's turntables and, you know, the big record players in the house, those consoles, taking all the stuff out and making it their own. Uh, one DJ told us that he, he took out the elements of that big console that grandma had and put it in a Pampers box. Back then, the Pampers boxes were a little bit thicker cardboard, so he could drill into it and put put his gear in, walk around with that. Uh, very innovative, for sure. But, boy, gosh, the idea of losing. So you just didn't lose. That was the point, right? Yeah, don't lose. So uh, Grey Wizard Theater, who we heard in our first episode, had a mom that didn't do a lot of verbal communications as he would. <laughs> so when he would come back with a new speaker, would you steal that? No, mom, I want it. <laughs> you got to be careful. So after a while, he would just sneak in new stuff. That I have to explain it. <laughs> 
you guys, I wanted to also um, talk a little bit about um, the mobile DJ. I think that's a very important thing that started before hip hop in the disco era when um, DJs were asked to go to weddings and proms and things like that, just bring records. And they weren't necessarily doing special cues, you know, segues between one another. They weren't bringing up their, their own beats. You know, that all happened with hip hop. But they did provide a service of a very similar looking setup. So when hip hop came, they were ready. And a guy named Dave Lopez in Southern California did just that. He was a DJ for weddings in the disco era. And as records came available in hip hop, he jumped right in and found out that he had some skills doing that. Um, and so I'd love to have him tell some of that story. Here's my friend, Dave Lopez. You know, growing up in, in the uh, East Los Angeles area is kind of rough. Uh, you either joined a gang or did something else. And my something else was music. So in, in uh, growing up in elementary school, I was in charge of the record player and playing the music in the classroom. And in the beginning, in the mornings, when you go to elementary school back in the 70s, you did the Pledge of Allegiance. You, you, they played the Star Spangled Banner. And I was in charge of taking that turntable with a speaker and playing the record for the entire school in the morning when we went to school. Um, I caught the bug then, uh, playing music uh, on, on a turntable. Um, and I want to say that was the birth of me starting to be a mobile DJ <laughs> because I got to lug the equipment around, set it up, and I'm 10 years old. And, um, and, and the, rest, uh, the, the rest just fell in place. I, I tell everybody the same story. Disco saved my life. If it wasn't for disco, none of us would be in this business. Plain and simple. There was no hip-hop yet. It was all about disco. My teacher in high school said, we're having a disco dance contest. Do you want to play the music? Sure. Can you ruffle up a couple of turntables? Sure. Some speakers? Sure. You have lights? No. And um, I rustled up some, some disco records and I played them for the disco dance contest in our high school gym in Alhambra, California, 1979. I was in the 10th grade, I was 15 years old. From then on end, uh, I got hired to do all the dances. So I had to buy more equipment, speakers. Lighting didn't exist yet. Um, maybe I should say this off record, but I used to go to the police salvage yard in Los Angeles where they were going to destroy these beautiful police cars because they were wrecked. And I'm like, what are they going to do with those lights? I'm going to take one. I took it to school. Electronics teacher taught me how to wire it to AC from DC. Hung them in the gym. Disco. And it was awesome. My very first house party, when, before I even bought a mixer, I had two Pioneer receivers, giant home speakers, and my partner and I, we would mix the volume and listen to the beat of the music. I turn mine down, he'd turn his up. We'd go back and forth, mm. like giant pots in a radio station back in the days. We would turn the volume up, turn it down, and we'd listen to the beat, tap our feet to the beat of the music, and try to get that beat in sync. Mm. It was tough, but it was fun, and uh, that's... That was the beginning of it. Um, buying gear, you saved us some money. You went to a place called the Federated Group or Pacific Stereo here in Los Angeles. And you saved up the $200 to buy a turntable and the speakers and learn about gear the hard way. Because we didn't know that you can blow up speakers the way we did. We didn't know about crossover networks. Um, woe and flutter on a turntable that would destroy the woofers. I kept buying more speakers until one time a friend of mine at a place called Torrance 2000 said, Dave, what are you doing with your speakers? Why are you buying so many? They're blowing up. Bring them in. I'll recone them for you. What's reconing? Bring them in. I'll fix them for you. Luckily, he saved my life. Got the Sir and Vegas speakers. Had them reconed. He even sold the ones I really didn't need. So you learn about that stuff. You learn about amplification from people who want to help you. And luckily for this industry, there's a lot of people who are willing to help.
we were a troop. We're, it wasn't just one guy. It was a bunch of guys because we had a lot of equipment to carry. So we all wore the same shirts. We put our, our DJ name across the front. In my day, it was called, we were called Britannia. There was a brand of women's jeans called Britannia. So we called ourselves Britannia. I went to a Pasadena flea market, found a British flag, hung, hung it behind the DJ booth in the school gyms, and everybody knew, that's Britannia. And we all had the same equipment and stuff and the same music, but it came down to the name of the group and uh, what you wore, your shirts, your colors, we'll call it. And it just grew from there literally overnight, say from 79 to say maybe 85, 86. The mobile DJing craze just took off, at least in Los Angeles during that time. Um, the, the, the genre changed a little bit. Disco kind of died out. Um, and it got into more of a electronic, say, uh, freestyle music, they called it. Um, K-Rock music. There's a big radio station here in Los Angeles called K-Rock, and it's still around today. Um, they played a dance version of electronic music, um, and we called it K-Rock music, and everybody loved it. And uh, so starting to grow up in the 80s now, you had disco, you had K-Rock alternative music. You still had the rock music going on. So we had a, a wide array of genres to choose from. And at the end of the day, at night on weekends, every kid just wanted to go to a dance and have fun. And, uh, and it, it kind of blew up from there. And uh, even a, a, a dance show called Soul Train back then went from the R&B funk music to hip hop. And that transition was so swift and hard and fast. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it's lived to this very day. Um, uh, kids loved it, they danced to it, it was different. And uh, we'd have to develop a whole new library of hip hop music when we did dances because the kids got into it. And to this very day, I have a 17 year old daughter, that's all they really want to listen to is hip hop music. Yeah. In addition to the evolution of the musical styles, was the demand because of this mobile DJ and all of its demands on, on DJ work is the equipment. I wonder if you could tell me what you saw there as far as innovations in technology changing and, and some of the products coming out. Sure, sure. Well, of course, first and foremost was the DJ mixer. That was, your, that was the heart of your system. Um, you had various companies coming out with these cool mixers. Uh, different uh, mixers had different effects on them. And you could do echo effects, and that was kind of cool. And of course, the king of the number one, uh, one of the number one tools was the turntable, the Techniques 1200. Uh, if you had 1200s, you were a pro, <laughs> even at 15. Um, and, and nothing else uh, would matter. Um, the speakers, the go-to speaker back then was Sir Vega. Um, they were big, they were loud. And the larger the system you had, the more people remembered you. But that was the go-to gear, sound craftsman amps. We call them shoebox amps because they're little square boxes. But boy, they, they gave a punch. And from there, you know, vinyl um, CDs started coming out, right? And when we saw that CD market, we're like, wow, they don't scratch, they don't skip. But boy, the transition was hard from going from vinyl to CD so much so that we still took our turntables and, of course, our CD players because it was hard to break away from the vinyl. And uh, it took a long time to break away from that. But seeing the gear evolve, um, you know, it went going from analog to digital on the CD side. Um, it, it was amazing. But uh, very few companies wanted to get into that just yet. You had uh, pioneering companies like Newmark who came out with the mixes, or Pyramid, mm. uh, Gemini also, who came out with this gear. Uh, like I said, Sir Vega was really the only player um, in, in that speaker market. So every DJ bought Sir Vegas, and that was the go-to 1200s. You got to have techniques. Nobody had a direct drive turntable that was powerful enough to do the back masking and the scratching like techniques. But to see the gear evolve, it was slow in the transition into CDs, and even slower from CDs to digital media to MP3. Mm. Um, but to this day now, 2019, 
do they still take vinyl? They take CD players for backup. Have DJ controllers now, which is a big market. Uh, where it goes from here, who knows, right? But the DJ controller market is is huge. Uh, it's probably close to 60%, 70% of the DJ market, mobile DJ market, are using DJ controllers now. Uh, the hip-hop DJ still loves the vinyl. And you can't blame them because that touch and feel when you're scratching, you can't get that on a DJ controller, only on the vinyl. And uh, they're much more creative that way when they're scratching on vinyl rather than a DJ controller. Yeah. We grew up in a time in the 70s, 80s, and 90s where... Um, the, the genres of music that that started this whole DJ that drove the DJ industry um, was so dynamic and so diverse that you can go to a disco club on a Friday, go to a hip hop club on a Saturday, and then go to a rock club on sun, on sunset on Sunday, um, and it was okay. Nobody said, "Oh, you need to stick to one genre or stick to one." No, you did whatever you wanted to do. Um, and that diversity was so cool. So, you know, one day you put on your cool disco clothes, and the next day you can dress all hip, dress all hip hop, and and then uh, go in your gangster gang or your rocker clothes, your leathers, and you know, um, it was neat. I, I'll never forget going to a disco club on a Friday uh, out in Hollywood, and, and then Saturday going to a hip hop club in Long Beach on a Saturday night or a Sunday, and then just going to. Uh, a cool rock club like the Whiskey A Go Go, um, uh, and, and just em embracing all that. Thank God that I had the opportunity to uh, get into this line of work, and uh, we've all been blessed. At this point, we'd really like to acknowledge other DJs we've interviewed for the NAM Oral History Program that weren't included in these podcasts. A big thank you to Steve D, DJ J-Rock, Babu, Ralph M, DJ Quest, DJ Retmatic, Keith Shockley, DJ Revolution, DJ Melody, DJ Styles, the original Spinderella, DJ Hollywood, DJ Scratch, Mean Gene, Grand Mixer, DXT, Jazzy J, Dr. Dust, Dr. Evil E, Africa Bambada, my man DJ Rock and Rob, and more recently DJ Ken, DJ Mod Girl, and yet to be interviewed DJ Cat Scratch. Yeah, love to all you guys. A special love to Christy Z, who helped us with most of those interviews, and all those who have helped, uh, Krista Glove, and of course this fabulous team here, Alex and Suzanne. Uh, just really great to have had the opportunity to interview so many of those wonderful performers and innovators. And I think it might be a good time to give a little love to DJ Imperial JC, who passed away. Um, rest in peace. Here's a few moments of our time with him. I had a group of DJs. My brother, Playboy, and these guys were just as good as me because we all practiced together. So we all had the same skills. I was just the one that was able to get out. And, but these guys were just as good as me. Playboy, my brother, uh, uh, other guys in the area that were really, really good. So people didn't know that the West Side had a lot of good DJs because we all stayed in one little area. And to her, found one of them and took them. But I had a lot of good guys, a lot of the good DJs with me. That were better than me actually at the time. Yes. And I, you know, I tell them, look, I tell them today, I tell them, look, I tell my brother, I tell, I tell Playboy, I said, Playboy, you were really, really good. What happened? And you know what Playboy said to me? And then my brother, we falling back. We want you to go get it. Somebody tell you that? That they fall it back?
I had much love for them. Because they were just as good as me. If you don't understand, as a kid, you're coming up, you ain't got nothing. And then you finally get something. And you get some people to like something that you're doing. You don't understand it until you get my age now, 56 years old. And people are giving you love back. Telling you how you made their day. How they remember things. They can hear a song and remember that. That you played that in the 80s. They have their kids now come to you and say to you, this is the guy I grew up listening to. This is hip hop. And you sit there and people take it for granted. I don't take it for granted. You're, all, you're a fan of mine. You're always going to be a fan of mine because I'm never going to treat you wrong or say anything outlandish because I need you to still be my fan. And I'm sorry that I, that I cried on that, but it's just knowing that people are out there looking out for you. And I think that was the real big deal. You know, and these guys around me today, and they still fell back. Still fell back. And they, and they come around me, and they push me. Jay, we fell back, but we need you to keep going. We need you to keep going. Don't stop. You, you, you're sick now, but keep going. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. And that's what I do. I just keep pushing every day for them, for them. For them, for Herc, for Clark Kent, for Coke Barack, for Theodore, for Flash. I love them guys. I tell you, Kaz is an ambassador to me. Kaz is everywhere. Kaz don't make us look bad at all, never. I saw him on that stage and I cry when I see him on that stage would would uh was chic because it showed me how far that man then came. I got so much love for Cash, I just don't believe it. And every time I see him, I know he's representing us 100. And I tell him every day. All right, you guys, this is so fun. I'm really enjoying this episode and so glad you guys are listening in. As we celebrate hip-hop's 50th anniversary, we can't forget the subject of beat juggling. Well, to me, it's beats on top of beats. When you're doing segues, you're, you're not just going from one song to another with an easy scratch, you know, or maybe a little bit of the last song repeats, and then you go into it. You're actually creating another beat on top of it. Yeah, so that would be kind of, I think, more a little bit akin to the mixing, mm. you know. Some are just mixing you know, going from one song to the next song. But even that's still very much an art because, you you know, you got to keep the groove going. And depending on if you're changing the tempo or just, you know, the what dynamics of the song might be shifting, you still want to keep folks on the flow and whatnot. Um, that's a real thing. And then I think even today you see a little bit more of, like, folks adding in, like, uh, you know, the, the beat machines. So they're actually adding some some layers of beats that might not be with the records. Uh, to that transition piece too, and making stuff like on the spot too. So, okay, that's 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 a new one for me. I hadn't I hadn't heard the, the beat juggling and whatnot. So, but I I got it. I'm All right, right, right. Well, I think it's also kind of cool when you're talking about mixing. I'm also thinking about now with software programs. You know, it's a lot easier to do sampling as part of that transition too. So it's really fun to hear James Brown out of nowhere, you know, that, wait, there's two songs going here. They can't have three turntables, but because of software, they're able to mix in some obscure other beats and other segments I think are fantastic. Yeah, but, but, to, the, but to that point, I think all aren't created the same because, <laughs> because um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting thing to hear when a, a DJ has chat challenges mixing to the new song and like some of those abrupt hmm. uh starts and stuff really really 
I don't want to talk about it. It's giving me a headache. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, shout out to the ones that know how to do it. No doubt. Definitely. And speaking of ones that know how to do it, let's get right into DJ Aladdin. At the time, creating what a lot of the DJs are doing now, like beat juggling, um, things like that, because when we were doing it, it wasn't really a name. We, we never really created a name for it, but it was just certain styles like... I did an episode on uh, Yo! MTV Raps with Ed Lover and Dr. Dre back in the days, and I was doing a beat juggle off of a record, uh, a Special Ed, and the record was, uh, I can't think of the name at the time, but it was a Special Ed record, and I was beat juggling. Boom, doom, boom, doom, boom, 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 and things like that would make it like, I guess the DJs now just took it to a whole nother level. But back then we were doing that and creating styles like that, but didn't know that it was actually beat juggling. So being around that time, because a lot of the DJs now be like, oh, man, y'all was doing that back then. But then I started enhancing it, putting tricks with it and seeing other DJs, what they would do. And then I would just mix mine up like gumbo, just little bits of this, little bit of that and try to create that own DJ Latin feel with the beat juggling. So I say that's one of my most uh, credible moments to the DJing game. And beat juggling from my point of view is when you can create another beat out of a beat. So if the beat went more like, uh, uh, do 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 and say you go do 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 but you changing the beat to where you doing it with a beat DJing style so that was my thing of beat juggling making a beat create another beat within a beat now the latin shuffle was something that i created because it was more of a dance with the beat. So it's like you're doing a move with the beat, but you're actually doing a dance with the beat, but you're staying on beat. That's the key to a Latin shuffle because once you do the dance, you got to be able to get back on beat to catch the rhythm so everything will flow back in, 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 in sync. And that was uh, what my key points was coming up, even in the DJing world on the East Coast, because you had to keep your beat. Whatever you do, you the key was to stay on beat. That was the key. You know what I'm saying? Because if you didn't really stay on beat, then it would be like mainly like you couldn't you couldn't really grab the crowd. They wouldn't rocking with you or none of that. But if you stayed on beat and you knew you was on beat, you would get them going ah. The crowd would just start getting pumped. And they like ah. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. That's when you know you rocking. You know. So, yeah, that was the difference between me with the Latin Shuffle and the beat juggling. Because the Latin Shuffle is more like a trick, doing a, a trick with the beat as you create a beat. And then the beat juggling is just straight creating a beat within the beat. Out of all the little mix masters who was there at the time, I pointed out Tony G. and uh, But we always had a love for each other because I idolized Tony G. I idolized Joe Cooley and Inwalk, Egyptian lover, all of them. But Tony G was a more, uh, I feel that he was more my mentor because I never really hung around him a lot, but when I would go see him, I would always get dope styles, dope things. He would always say something positive. So I said, let me battle Tony G. And it, it turned out to be where it wasn't really a battle. It was just like a showcase because I know he could have really like, like killed me in the battle, but he Gave me a little leeway and gave me some shine to where I can get to the Mixmaster show. And then I just, that gave me motivation to improve my DJ and battling from there because I just got more encouraged to go home and practice, practice, practice. Then I wanted to take DJ battling to another level because at the time, um, the West Coast wasn't really getting the props for battling. So if you really want to get your real stripes and get your credibility on battling you had to go to new york and at that time um like they had like the dmc's really that's all i really knew about 
at that time because um they had another uh I say probably like a DJ battle thing, but it wasn't as popular as DMC when I went. And I wanted to go to the one in New York because I felt it was more credibility. It would have uh, gave me more uh, notoriety and exposure in the DJ world as far as my name. Because like I say, West Coast wasn't getting that. So if, for me to be a West Coast DJ and win on the East Coast, it really put that DJ Latin name out there. Like, you know what I'm saying? So that was one of my best moments, I can say, winning on that East Coast. You know, I won a couple of times on the East Coast, but that one winning in New York that time, it was really like, it was an awesome moment because it gave me that I can do it. And they didn't look at me with, oh, you from the West Coast, because, you know, they didn't respect us there. But they really gave me my props when they seen my set. That's why I love New York. Because they go, New York is real. They ain't go sugarcoat nothing. They go tell it like it is. Either you whack or you dope. Ain't no in between. Oh, yeah, you got a little potential. Nah, they going to give it to you hard. You know, and that's what I love about that, though, because it made me a better DJ. I work with a few artists. I came in the game with uh, artists like King T, uh, Coolio. Uh, Dub C, we had a group called Low Profile. We're in this together where I display a lot of my DJ skills. Uh, worked with artists like Rest in Peace, Mixmaster Spade, uh, Ice T from uh, basically uh, with uh, OG the album all the way down to Home Invasion. And uh, I did a couple of uh, soundtracks with him uh if you guys remember the new jack city movie i did uh the song new jack hustler uh i did uh a song with uh ice t on this uh soundtrack called ricochet with denzel washington and uh i did a song on this soundtrack called trespass and that was ice t and ice cube i also did a prince remix of uh, get off and uh, I got some writer's credit on Jay-Z's 99 Problems. And I got writer's credit on this. My latest credit is uh, the song All Me, uh, Drake, Big Shine, and Two Chains. Once you think it, you can do it. And that's why I'm, it's a pleasure for me to be here at NAM because NAM helped you develop your ideas to the next level. You know what I'm saying? You might see something that you want to accomplish, but coming to a NOM conference, I've, I've found out how to do it. You know what I'm saying? And this is my first NOM uh, convention event, and I want to thank everybody out there that invited me and appreciate all y'all who gave me the opportunity to come up here because I had a beautiful experience just to be here, see all the new technology that's going on because now it make me... Now I know what I want to go get to add to my collection, you know, and what's so what's so exciting about it because they even educate you on it. So they don't you don't have a problem telling you about the product, you know, and then you can go home and you know what you're dealing with. So this was a blessing. I give it to you. I thank you, Christy. I thank DMC, because if it wasn't for DMC, it wouldn't have been no DJ Aladdin. DMC was the first to put DJ Aladdin on in New York. You know what I'm saying? But that took dedication out of me because I had to go hustle up the plane ticket to get to New York. If I didn't have the motivation to want to go from Compton to New York, it wouldn't have never, this, all my dreams wouldn't have never really transpired into reality, <laughs> basically. You know what I'm saying? So it was awesome, but you got to believe in yourself. You got to go and you got to have that drive in you. That was DJ Aladdin, and uh, I would like to find out a little bit more about equipment that uh, the DJs used, like the Roland 808 mm -hmm. and uh, the vocoder, maybe. Yeah, let's do it. What are your thoughts, Kendrick? Um, I think, kind of referring back to, I think we kind of, I kind of mentioned it in our first uh, episode, which is... There's so much equipment that came out of this space um, in terms of, um, you know, the sequencing that is able to happen from the turntables to now, 
you know, the production side of it where folks are maybe to creating beats and maybe adding that to the DJ sets. Um, it's, it's really amazing when you sit down and think about all the, the nuances of what was created and how it's executed uh, in a space, especially in terms of like, like I said, as a producer myself, like I'm started out very kind of basic, but now I'm starting to add, like, I just got uh, a piece of equipment that I'm, I'm learning that I'm sitting down trying to figure out, you know, okay, how do I get the sample in there and doing all this other stuff. So one of the dynamics that around creativity is this space of kind of less is more, right? The creativity shows up when you're boxed in. And so when you think about what folks were creating, especially in these early days with such limited capacity with the types of machines that they had and have made music that stood, that stood the test of time. Like that's the part that really stands out for me. No doubt. No doubt. And I think that if you do think about the early days, like uh, Jazzy Joyce, when she talked to us in the earlier episode about plugging into the lamppost to get your electricity in the park, you know, you have a lot of limitations there. I mean, you're looking for a power source, you know, you got an issue. And they started with two turntables in the mixer. And sometimes those mixers, as, as Grandmaster Flash has often said, went down to Radio Shack and asked a guy, how can I make these, these right. happen? How can I listen to a song before I play it? Right. And he figured out a way to do that. And uh, so that necessity created a whole new category of musical instruments. And that's the thing that I think is absolutely amazing. Uh, you're talking about a DXT on stage, you know, and that turntable at the Grammy Awards with uh, Herbie Hancock. That was the first time a lot of people saw that and said, wow, that's a musical instrument now. I mean, that it was a major growth and development. And then I think... Outside of those two um, components arose a more commercial approach to making hip-hop. And as a result, you had studio space now and creating, and it wasn't just for parties at the park. And as a result, then the 808 comes in, in my opinion. There we have another element and synthesizers that have not only just beats, but other weird sounds. I know the early days had a lot of Oberheim synthesizers uh, creating sounds in between uh, the, the records that they were sampling and using. So the development of equipment was particularly quick, I think. Once it became viable and it became an industry, People like Gemini and American DJ and other uh, manufacturers said, okay, how can we improve this? And they actually asked some of these folks, you know, Theodore was asked often, hey, how, how would you use it if we did it this way? Or, how, you know, if we put the switch over here, is that good or bad? That's bad. Do it this way. You know, that kind of thing. And I love that because it's, it's happened. You know, we can point to people now and say, this is how it happened. And we have a harder time with that in generations before all of this media is able to document it. You know, in jazz, there's a lot of question marks about who was the first one who took a solo. You know, we have a lot of questions about, how did improvisation start? Well, you know, we have a lot of great documentation for this genre of music, and I think that's an important thing. And I'm just, I, I think it's thrilling that we get to talk about it because there are people like Grand, Grand Wizard Theodore we can point to. The scratch started there, you know, and we can point to Flash and so many others of creating something very, very specific. And speaking of equipment, next we're going to hear from DJ Sir Jinx. How I got started is um, being on punishment, like, you know, being a kid. And um, I couldn't go outside, so I had to figure out what I was going to do in my room. And that was the only thing my mother really couldn't stop me from doing because she didn't know I was doing it. So ultimately, learning music, listening to my radio clock all night, and uh, I just thought that at some point I wasn't going to be a basketball player. So I just knew that uh, music was probably a better niche for me to invest into. And so how did you take it out of your bedroom and punishment into the, into the world? Um, getting equipment and doing stuff when other people wanted, you know, bicycles and different kind of things. I, I, I was wanting these little component sets and I would fix them and stuff like that. So it was just how it evolved with me. So at first, you know, it was the 
DJing, it was a break dance, and it was graffiti. All of it kind of played a part with me uh, just being attached to music itself. What do you feel your biggest <laughs> contribution to the art form has been? Helping people, being the missing link, Sir Jinx. That's that's what I feel like I've done for a lot of people is is help them, you know, find their way. Because out here in the West Coast, it wasn't as easy as it was in, the, in other places. You had to actually know somebody. So it wasn't no moguls. It wasn't no ANRs. You had to actually know people. So uh, I wasn't a gang member. I didn't do nothing like that. So I actually uh, just help help people connect the dots. I, and, and a lot, I'm in a lot of people's stories when it comes to just me being behind the scenes and how I help people. I think that's what I'm going to be most remembered for. That's why they put me in uh, Strata Compton, because at the end of the day, you know, they, they could have wrote that any kind of way, but you just can't, you can't take Sir Jinx out of the mix. Ah! You can use that. <laughs> I, I use DJing because I'm an artist, yeah. and there's levels to being an artist, and there's, you know, there's line and the shadows and the stuff. So with DJing, it, I, I applied that to art. So if... And back in the day, it was no Pro Tools, but now you can see it. But at first, I could see it when it wasn't even there, and it was just tracks, and I can see it in levels. So that's that's basically how I start putting stuff together is um, my art form, and then it turned into music because art has a theme to it. It has a hue to it, and music has a tone to it, and they, they both are the same as well as pictures and video. They all had the same kind of um, words, you know? On the computer, all the smart the smart keys are the same thing. Like to edit, to shorten, to brighten, to so high and, and music, and you turn the highs up, that's like turning the blue up in, in, in video, or you turn the red on video and turn the bass, then that's bass. So they both, when I, when I hear music, I hear art in my ears, and I can draw it in my eyes. So sometimes they both coincide together. So now you can have a fingerprint on a sound visually, and I can see it. Before. I, I could see it a long time ago. And that's how back in the day, we were like, thanks, how did you, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the, um, um, the jacking for beats, you know, and how, all that was the first mixtape song, period. Like, no, nobody has ever even thought of that idea of doing other people's music because we wasn't really getting the support we needed from the East Coast. So we just started doing everybody's music. And we, I saw that. I saw how that can happen, how all that can be condensed into three minutes and we can still get props in down south. We still get props up north, you know, with digital underground. We still get public enemy. And I don't think nobody ever thought of that idea, but that all came from art and blending things. It was almost like Photoshop and music, you know, that at that time it wasn't invented. So I'm still learning, working on music, dealing with technology, how it has evolved from the analog to the digital and how they make presets and how to get around those presets and kind of make my own formula and just still, I still love music. Like it still does something to me that it's like second to a woman. You know, a woman can do something to me, but music can do something to me too. And I just, I just don't understand that. And I can see art and it do something to me. So I'm just working on, working on myself. I could say that. I, I feel today, sometimes they're not taking it so serious and they think it's easy, but it's easy when you're standing on somebody's shoulders to see something. But um, one day, they, you know, they'll figure out that, you know, when you when you lose it, it's over. And once you abuse it, it's done. It's done. So the new era of rap music, they got to keep keep some message behind it. And, don't you know, the mumble rap and all that is just what they doing. I, I get it. It's a style. But if your style don't have anything behind it where people can believe you, and you inspire somebody. A lot of the rap songs a long time ago inspire people, not inspire them to do drugs or not inspire them to rob and kill. They inspired them to get out of the hood and inspired them to be better than, you know, than the, 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 the guys in front of us. You know, we didn't have that opportunity 
in, in 86 and 85 and 82. That, that wasn't there. So we built this, this situation for them to just like say anything. Rappers, don't say anything. Say something that means something. And you'll probably make more money and be remembered. I'm making history. Check your history books. That concludes our series celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop and all the contributors. And um, I know you don't like flattery, Dan. Mm. I'm going to try to make him blush. Turn red, turn red, turn red. <laughs> Good on you. Congratulations on realizing the importance of capturing this group and being um, interviewing these people from years and years ago and capturing the thoughts of many of the founders of hip hop and continuing on. We're still gathering these interviews and good on you, Dan. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Kendrick, again, thank you very much for having been here and uh, bringing so much more uh, depth to our conversation here. Thank you for having me and, and actually including me. Um, like like I said, I, I got a chance to be exposed to some things through seeing some of these names and um Next time we we can we can add some of the South, you know, some of the South and some of the Midwest yeah, yeah. in oh. here too. That's, that's, uh, to yeah, but I, I love the fact that this has been archived and captured in such a, a dynamic way too. So so thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure for us, an honor to uh, celebrate hip hop with you and my colleagues Alex and Suzanne. Thank you very much. Uh, it's. Uh, I've said before, I'll say it again. It's a blessing. I'm so glad that we have this opportunity to capture and share these stories. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino. Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And Alex Rosner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.